Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 8 tonight. And we're, we're halfway through Revelation 5 at this point. We'll see how far we get tonight. But if you remember, we're in this section where uh, John is seeing this vision. And it's, uh, if you remember, there's this terrible situation where they had this scroll and it had seven seals on it. And they look around and there's no one who is worthy to open the scroll. There's no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. No one who is worthy to open the scroll. And the reason that's a bad situation is because the scroll has to be opened in order for God's plan to be executed. If the scroll remains closed, God's plan does not happen. And so we need that plan to happen for the redemption of the saints, for the restoration of the, the earth, for uh, the execution of justice and judgment and evildoers to be uh, sent away. So you have to have the scroll open. They look around, and there's no one. But then, you'll remember, uh, John starts crying and, and one of the 24 elders comes up to him and says, hey, don't cry anymore because there's this great lion, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah. And he's going to be here and he's going to open this scroll, right? And so John hears about this lion, but when he turns around, what does he see? You remember the great irony? A lamb. He hears about a lion, but he sees a lamb. And this lamb looks as though it has been slain, even though it is standing. So he's clearly been slain, but the lamb is standing. We said it was a reference to Jesus' resurrection after his sacrificial death. And we talked about the scroll, but then when you get to verse 8, we're going to actually see the lamb go, and he's going to approach the throne of God, and he is going to take the scroll from God, and they're going to sing a new song. It's one of these moments that's so significant in life that, that it has to be recorded. It has to be commemorated, right? I mean, you know this happens from time to time when, when something so big happens that it has to be recorded. Like at a wedding, you get a, a photographer because that's something you want to remember, right? Or if you're musically inclined and something big happens in your life, you write a song about it because it's a way to commemorate that event. Right? I mean, you even think about our country. Our national anthem is a testament of that, is it not? Think about Francis Scott Key as he was on that British ship back in, I think it was like 1812, 1814 actually. And he's on this British ship and he's looking out at Fort McHenry and there's a battle raging and he's just looking at the American flag hoping that it'll make it through the morning to show that the Americans prove victorious. And he goes out the next day and he looks and he sees that flag flying and he knows what it meant, and so he had the back of an envelope, and he just starts writing down this poem that would eventually be turned into a song, which would become our national anthem. It was a moment that needed to be recorded and commemorated. And that's exactly what the heavenly hosts are doing here. Verse 9 is going to tell us that they are going to sing a new song. So when they see the Lamb of God go right up to the throne of God, which no one does. No one just approaches the throne of God, and yet the Lamb does. And not only does He approach the throne of God, He reaches out, He takes the scroll, and He's going to open it. And so they're going to sing this, this new song. And so here's, here's the thought that I want us to be thinking about this evening as we're looking at this passage together. I want us to be thinking about what does this new song teach us about the Lamb of God, the people of God, and the plan of God? Those three things. What, what does this new song that they're singing teach us about the Lamb of God, the people of God, 
and the plan of God. We're going to start in verse 8. So if you have your Bibles, be looking there at verse 8. And the Bible says, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So, so here's my question. What's the first thing we learn about the Lamb of God in these verses? What's the very first thing? He's worthy, right? He's worthy to go and take the scroll and to open its seals, but very specifically, what makes him worthy? The Bible's going to list three things here that makes him worthy. What's the first thing you see? He was slain. That's exactly right. The first reason he's worthy to open the scrolls is because he was slain. So you have a slain lamb. What does that immediately make you think of? Sacrifice? There's a very specific event. Old Testament. Passover. What happened at the Passover? Yeah, as long as they were covered by the blood of the Lamb, then the angel of death did not touch them, right? And it became this great uh, picture of salvation in the Old Testament that was pointing forward to Christ. And the Bible actually says that Jesus is our Passover Lamb. He was the one who was slain for us, and if we are covered by His blood, then we too are safe from judgment and from the wrath of God. And so He shows Himself to be worthy to take the scroll and to open it, but, but you have to understand something here. When I say that Jesus is worthy because of something he did, you have to understand, Jesus has always been perfect in his person, right? From, from all of eternity, nothing has ever changed about Jesus. He has always been perfect in his person, but it was by him accomplishing God's mission by going and offering himself as the sacrifice for God's people that he proves himself to be worthy to open the scroll, to open the seals that are sealing the scroll. Jesus, you have to remember, a lot of people will look at his death, and if you imagine the scene when Jesus was dying, there were a lot of people mocking him, correct? He called himself the king of the Jews. He said he was going to save his people. He can't even save himself. Why don't you get yourself off that cross? What were they thinking as Jesus was dying? They were thinking he lost, right? Rome had won. The Jewish leaders had won. Jesus had lost. But the thing you have to understand is Jesus did not die accidentally. He died intentionally. And no one took his life from him. Jesus laid down his own life. The the events of his death were not beyond his control. They were all part of the plan of God from all eternity past. I mean, Jesus even said in John 10, 18, about his life, he says, no one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus laid down His own life, not only in obedience to the Father's will, because if you'll remember, Isaiah 53.10 says very specifically that it was the will of the Father to crush Him. 
the will of the Father to crush him. But Jesus also laid down his life, not just in obedience, but it was out of love. Remember what the Bible says in John 15, 13. Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so this sacrifice that we see where Jesus is slain as the great Passover lamb, it wasn't just out of obedience, it was out of love for us. And with that sacrifice, he fulfilled God's plan of salvation He was substituted in our place, and so He is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Which means that we need to remember, there is salvation in no one else except for Jesus. There is only one being, one uh, creature, if you want to call Him that. There is only one who is worthy to open the scroll, to take it and open its seals, and that's Jesus. There is salvation in no one else. There is not salvation in your good works. There is no salvation in you trying to be perfectly obedient because guess what? The second you mess up once, the Bible says if you transgress one aspect of the law, you transgress the whole law. You've already messed up. It's not from your good works. It's not from your perfect obedience. It's not from trying to be the best you that you can be, which is hard for some of us to hear, isn't it, if we're honest? I mean, I mentioned a conversation I had a few weeks ago. I had another conversation today with a man who said, I'm trying my hardest. I just want people to know that. I am trying my hardest. I want to say, that's great. That's good. You should try your hardest. But at the end of the day, you can try your hardest and it'll never be good enough. You cannot save yourself. There's no way to do that. And all these other religions of moralism, or if you want to go to like Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, there is no salvation in any of these things. Salvation is only found in Christ. He is the only one who can cover you from the wrath of God. He's the only one who can take the scroll and open its seals. And so he's worthy because he was slain. But then the second reason, what's the second reason there that you see that he's worthy? He did something else. What does it say? That's right. He ransomed people by his blood. Now, that word ransomed, does anyone know what it means? Redeem? Or another word? Purchase? Very simple, yeah. Purchase. So uh, Jesus purchased a people from God. So he actually paid a price for people. And he did this for God. It was a word that was used to describe paying a price for a slave, to buy a slave's freedom. So if if there was a slave, you wanted to ransom that slave, give them their freedom, you'd go and pay a price for their freedom. Which means we were all slaves in bondage to sin. The Bible says that we were in chains. You can read Romans chapter 6 for that. And so Jesus pays the price for our freedom. He ransoms us. But here's my question that I want you to think about as we read this. To whom did Jesus pay the ransom? If you have to pay a price in order for us to be free, and he bought our freedom, well, to whom did he pay that price? To whom did he pay that ransom? To God? Okay. Anybody else? Any other suggestions? Never thought of it, huh? The most popular suggestion in the early church was that Jesus paid the ransom to Satan and he bought us back from Satan. What do we think about that? Yay? Nay? We got some no's? Okay. Anybody want to say yes or no? 
Nobody wants to give the wrong answer, huh? Well, the idea was that we were uh, under his rule and domain, and that he had such significant influence over us that it was like we were enslaved to him. And so they suggested that Jesus paid the ransom to Satan to buy us back and purchase our freedom. Okay, we got a bunch of no's over here. This side of the room's undecided. So like the right side, we got some no's. This side, we got undecided. Yeah? Right, <laughs> yeah, I get that. So the answer is no, that's right. I just want to see, I mean, you never know where people are going to come down, but yeah, the answer is no, because Satan never really owned us in the first place, did he? Now, he had rule, he had domain, he had significant influence, but as I've said before, Satan's really just nothing more than a glorified fisherman, you know? He knows what your favorite bait is, he likes to throw it out there, he can get it right in front of you, but he can't make you take the bait. Again, I said it Sunday, why do we sin? It's because we want to. The bait's in front of us, we like the bait, we take the bait, all right? So, no, Jesus did not pay a ransom to Satan. He paid a ransom to the justice of God. That's what the ransom was paid to. God's justice demanded a price. Anybody know what that price was? It was death. I mean, you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17. If you remember this, the Bible says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So if you disobey God, the price of that sin is death. That's what His justice demands. The Bible goes on in Romans 6.23 to say, For the wages of sin is death, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Jesus paid this price for us. He paid the price of death in order to redeem us from God and for God. Now, isn't that an amazing thought? All right, not a lot of people think about this, but we weren't just ransomed from God. He paid the price to God's justice. But we were also, according to this passage here, he ransomed a people for what? For God. So we were ransomed from God and ransomed for God. The two work together here. Jesus saves us from the wrath of God, but he also saves us for communion with God. He delivers us from God and delivers us to God. right yeah yeah he literally yeah exactly it was himself and so we are delivered from his wrath and delivered to his fellowship and so we need to understand that too because when people talk about salvation today one of the most common things they say well i was saved from my sin i was saved from hell i was saved from satan all this kind of stuff yeah but at the end of the day folks the primary thing that you were saved from was god himself We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all transgressed against God, rebelled against God. We've all sinned against God. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And so God has wrath stored up. Read about that in Romans chapter 1. That's that chapter people like to avoid today. 
But Romans chapter 1, you read about that? The wrath of God is now being poured out from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. There is wrath being stored up. Romans chapter 2 says that all that people are doing when they forsake God and they enjoy the, the goodness of God, but they don't actually repent, they are just storing up wrath for themselves in heaven. And so God is storing up all this wrath, and the only way that you were going to be delivered from that wrath is not by doing all the good works you could possibly do, not by, you know, talking nice and treating people well. That's great, but at the end of the day, that wrath is still going to be poured out on you. The only thing that can deliver you from God is God. And so that's what Jesus does. He ransoms us from God for God. And he paid a specific price, notice this, for a specific people. Notice what the Bible says here. People from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. We talked about this at length a couple Sundays ago, that the people of God are a mixed people. They are not just a bunch of people who look exactly alike. And praise God for that, right? I mean, you would just be insulting the creativity of God if heaven was just a sea of people who all looked alike. But it's a mixed people. People made in His image for His glory and His renown throughout all the earth. And I want you to understand this. No group of people has a more right to salvation than any other group. And that's something good for us to remember, is it not? It doesn't matter what group you're thinking about or fall into. It doesn't matter if we're talking about this group or that group or this group does not matter. There is not a single group of people on earth who have more right to salvation than any other group. Salvation comes through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this, uh, yeah. Doug's talking about the fact that when Paul was dealing with people, he kept trying to tell the Jewish people, you don't have to be Jewish to be saved. That's not the way that it works, that God is redeeming a people from himself from all of the world. I mean, you still see that today. There are many Jewish people who still think that today. Uh, we talked about this a couple Wednesdays ago. There's an interesting group today called the, the Black Hebrew Israelites who essentially believe that unless you're black, you're not going to be saved because they believe that they are the true Israel. And, and I want to say, brother, listen, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every language, every people... This is God's plan. There is not one special group who has more right to salvation than another. And we, we just have to understand that today. And I want you to notice this. He didn't just redeem us. The Bible says here that he made us a kingdom of priests to God. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? What, what do priests do? How do priests serve? Spread the word? Yeah, that's a good start. Anybody else? Priests? There you go. Yeah, connect people to God. Anything else? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, these are all good starts. You, you connect people to God primarily. That's 100% what a priest does. You spread the word. It's going in, in, in like they're saying. You go and tell other people there actually is a God. He is real. You tell them who he is. You share the gospel message with them. You intercede on their behalf. I mean, we can pray these prayers and say, God, have mercy on these people. Like when you have an unbelieving family member, an unbelieving friend, one of the best ways that you can serve as a priest for God is to say, God, save them. 
God, if it's not going to be me who's going to be the influence that leads them to Christ, send another person their way. Do something to open their eyes. Do something to soften their hearts. Do something to make them receptive to the gospel. God, have mercy on them and save them from their sins. If we're not praying for the lost, we're missing a huge part of what it means to be priest to God. So we have to pray for the lost. We have to be devoted to evangelism. We have to start connecting with people. And I want you to notice this interesting relationship that happens here, because this is pretty interesting. Jesus purchases a people for God, and then those purchased people are instrumental in executing the plan of God, the plan to save people from all nations. The Father, He plans the salvation. The Son accomplishes the salvation. And then the Holy Spirit goes and applies the salvation to the hearts of God's people. I mean, that's why you're saved in the first place, right? It's not because you made your way to God. It's because God drew you to Him and the Holy Spirit applied the effects of Christ's redemption to your life, caused you to be born again, gave you a new heart, got rid of that old stony heart, gave you a heart of flesh, gave you a new nature, indwelt you, so now you are a temple of the living God. The Father plans salvation. The Son accomplishes salvation. The Holy Spirit applies salvation. The whole Holy Trinity is involved in salvation. And he uses the the people that he has purchased to go and reach more people. So purchase people, pursue people. That's what we're meant to do. If we're going to accomplish this plan and we want to see it be a reality, you know what we have to do? We can't just say, well, I hope the pastor's out there during the week spreading the word. I can only do so much, all right? We've got to be committed to evangelism, right? If we want to see this plan become a reality, if we want to see people from every tribe, tongue, nation, language, and people worshiping Jesus in glory, you've got to go and tell people, right? You've got to go and tell people about Jesus. You've got to tell them about what he's done. You've got to spread the gospel message. Every Christian must take personal responsibility in evangelism. It is not just Alex's job to share the gospel with people. It's not just Jordan's job or Joseph's job. It's not just the job of people who were paid to be in ministry. It is the job and the responsibility of every single Christian, including you here. The Bible says that we're to be ambassadors for Christ. So if you want to see this mission accomplished, Understand that God's not just going to let you sit on the sidelines. He wants you to get in the game. You've got to be part of it. You've got to get out there. The plan is to use spirit-empowered, blood-bought people to reach the nations for Christ so that His fame and glory and honor might resound worldwide. And so the nations will sing like the heavenly host here of the infinite worth of Christ. And there's one other reason here, all right? So we're just looking at these verses, probably as far as we're going to get is verse 10 tonight. But there's a third reason that Jesus is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. He was slain. He ransomed the people for God. What else did he do? Rose from the dead. All right, what do we see here in these verses? He what? He made us? Made us what? He did what now? Okay. That's right. He made us priests and we will reign. So what did he do? He restored humanity 
to its original purpose. And that's easy to miss here. But part of why he is worthy to take this scroll and open its seals is because he restored humanity to our original purpose. What was humanity's original purpose? Do you remember? Think back to to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. What was the original purpose of humanity? Be stewards of the earth. Be fruitful. Multiply. Spread. Have dominion over the whole earth. So mankind originally served as these vice regents here on earth, serving under God. So God is king over all, and he said, okay, I've made these people in my image, and now they're going to be in this place, and they are going to have rule and reign over this place under me, and they're going to have dominion over this whole earth. And uh, here's something interesting to keep in mind. So that was part of humanity's original purpose, but you have to also remember that humanity served a priestly role as, as well. Do you all remember that? Now, I know we had a two-year study in Genesis. I know you haven't forgotten everything already, okay? How did humanity serve a priestly role in the beginning? We're going to have to go back through Genesis. Make it four years this time. All right, Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Genesis 2.15, don't forget that. You're thinking, okay, pastor, maybe you're just reading into things because I don't see a priestly role here. Well, just remember, Eden was like the first temple. Do you all remember that? A temple is a place where God meets with man. What happened in Eden? God met with man. They met together there. Uh, Probably, you know, they were walking together. You read about that in Genesis chapter 2. It serves as this first temple. Here's what's interesting about this verse where it says that man was supposed to work and keep the garden. The only other time, the only times after Genesis where those two words, work and keep, work it and keep it, the only times those words occur together in the Bible after Genesis is in reference to the Levitical priests and their responsibilities in the temple. Those are the only times those words occur together in Scripture after Genesis. Adam served as the first priest in the first temple. He was to work it and keep it. And then all the priests after him are to work and keep the other temple, the later temple. And so it serves as this this first temple. They had these priestly responsibilities. And so this was the original purpose of mankind. They were supposed to serve as priests for God. And they were supposed to have rule and reign, dominion, over the earth. Well, what happened after that? What was that? Sin. That's right. Mankind rebelled against God. We plummeted ourselves into sin. And all of humanity after that was fallen, as well as the world. And so we were no longer serving as priests, and we were no longer having dominion over the earth, which is why we still struggle today. And so Jesus comes in, and he not only saves us from our sins and delivers us from the wrath of God, but Jesus restores humanity to our original purpose. We were intended to be priests, and what does Jesus do? He makes us a kingdom of priests for God. We were intended to have dominion over the entire earth, and what does Jesus do? He makes us to reign on the earth. Which is a good, interesting question, is it not? We're reading this. 
don't read over it. Here's the interesting question. Why are we reigning on earth? New, new heaven, new earth? Okay. Um, what about this common idea that we're all, if you're a Christian, you're going to spend all of eternity in heaven? You ask any Christian, after you die, where do you go? Heaven. Okay. Where are you going to spend all of eternity? Heaven. What do we say to that? There's a new earth too, right? So where are we going to be? This is why studying Revelation is fun, is it not? The new earth? Are you going to be in the new heaven or the new earth? Both? Wherever you... Another good question. Where is Jesus during this time? Yeah, Doug, we're, we've already talked about that. We're going to get there again later. So let's, we're not going to get off on the thousand-year reign and all that at this point. But did you know there's not a single place in Scripture that says that Christians will spend all of eternity in heaven? It's just not there. Will all Christians go to heaven? Yes, yes. <laughs> it's for the judgment that's going to take place. So, like, if Jesus doesn't return, you know, before I die, I'm going to die, I'm going to go to heaven, and that's a pit stop. That's what the Bible says heaven is. It is a pit stop on the side of the road. There's some nice places there. Get to hang out with God. It is fantastic. Is it as good as it can be? No, because there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. That is not our final resting place. If Jesus returns before I die, am I going to go to heaven? Yeah, because, again, that's where the judgment takes place. That's where the throne of God is. And so every Christian will go to heaven, but then there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And the Bible says that humans, us, we are going to dwell on the new earth forever. You see that right here. They shall reign where? On earth. Are you part of the ransom there that that verse is talking about? He ransomed the people for God. Are you part of that? I would hope so. If not, let's have a talk after this. So you're part of the ransomed, right? Where does it say the ransomed will spend eternity? Where will they reign? On earth. If you go to the end of Revelation, which we're not going to do right now, but just to, you know, to, to say it, is if you go to the end of, Reve- of Revelation, it talks about after the final judgment, when there is this new heaven and new earth, there's a new Jerusalem. Where does the new Jerusalem go? Earth. It literally descends from heaven to go on the new earth. Now, here's what's really cool. And when we talk about this, when we get to Revelation 22 in a year and a half, y'all act surprised, okay? Y'all forget, so you won't have to be surprised. The new Jerusalem, if you look at the dimensions, you know how it gives all these very specific dimensions. And you're like, why is this in here? Why is this important? Why are we talking about the dimensions of this city? Well, what's interesting is it's a perfect cube. You know what else was a perfect cube? The Holy of Holies in the temple. And the Holy of Holies was the place where God met with man, and they dwelt together. And many scholars believe that Eden, the dimensions of Eden, were also a perfect cube, the first temple. And so what you have is the new Jerusalem descending like a Holy of Holies out of heaven to the new earth, where mankind is going to be. And the Bible says that God will dwell with us forever. So Jesus is there with us. That's where we're going to be. 
And then we have our renewed responsibility, our renewed purpose. You know what we're going to be doing? Expanding the new Jerusalem to have dominion over the entire earth. Spread the city's borders so that it finally encompasses the whole earth. That was the purpose with Eden. They weren't just supposed to stay there always in that garden forever. That's why God said, be fruitful and multiply. If you keep doing that, you can't fit everybody in that one place, right? You have to expand. So the idea was the whole earth is going to be this garden paradise temple where God and man dwell together. We mess that up, but in the new heavens and new earth, we have that restored purpose. What are we going to be doing? Expanding the new Jerusalem so that it encompasses the entire earth and so that the entire earth is a place where God and man dwell together forever. Which leads to another interesting question, which we're not going to get into tonight, but it's actually one that was submitted by CDC Kids. So the after-schoolers started asking Miss Cindy, what is heaven going to be like? And, you know, they're after-schoolers. So some of them, are we going to see angels flying around? Does my dog get to go to heaven with me? You know, things like that. But some of them ask really good questions. I mean, kids can ask some amazing questions. And some of them were asking questions like, what are we going to do in heaven? Are we going to remember any of our loved ones and our lives here on earth? One kid was asking, are we going to get bored in heaven? What are we going to do exactly? And that's a fun question to think about, is it not? Uh, We might have a podcast on that coming up pretty soon. But the short answer here is that this is part of what we're going to be doing. We're going to be taking the new Jerusalem to the ends of the earth and fulfilling God's original purpose for humanity to see that this earth become a paradise where God and man can dwell together forever. Now, there's a whole bunch of other stuff we're going to be doing. You're not just going to be sitting around singing all the time like a lot of people think you're going to be doing. But we can talk about that another day. The point is that because of these three things, Jesus proves himself to be worthy to take that scroll and to open its seals and notice that they immediately begin to praise him, saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And he says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. We can touch on those verses uh, again next week potentially, but, but I just wanted to, to read that to show that the only right response to seeing who Jesus is and what he has done is worship. That is the only right response. He is worthy of our worship because he was slain for our sins. He ransomed us as a people for God and he restores us to God's intended purposes for us. So, um, Michael Stevenson, how about giving us a word of wisdom?